Nancy Pelosi has left Taiwan, but the fallout for U.S.-China relations will continue. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be joined again by Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He was the founding director of the Confucius Institute at the university. He's also an organizer and activist with the peace group Pivot to Peace. Dr. Hammond, welcome back. Always glad to be here, Brian. Ken, we spoke two weeks ago in anticipation of Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, what the Chinese called a strategic level provocation. We didn't know with certainty, no one really did until really a few hours before she arrived, but indeed she did arrive this week. And the Chinese are carrying out live fire, massive military exercises around Taiwan. They're announcing boycotts of important commodities coming from Taiwan that have a a mainland China market. No one knows yet for sure what the fallout will be. But when we were talking, and I'm more firmly convinced of this than ever, Nancy Pelosi's trip, which seems on its face to be gratuitous, that is unnecessary, like a reckless, unnecessary provocation, wasn't the rogue actions of a rogue politician coming from Washington. Of course, she's number three in the line of succession after the president and vice president. But there was some sort of talk about, well, Biden said, we're not telling her to go. We've advised her not to go. She could not have gone. She could not have gone without the blessing of the Biden White House. She could not have gone without the blessing of the Pentagon. If the Pentagon or the White House said to the Speaker of the House of Representatives, you're not going. This is a reckless provocation. This is unnecessary. This is an unnecessary escalation. She would not have gone. The fact that she went, I think, means that for sure this was part of a U.S. operation towards China. Anyway, your thoughts? Well, I think that's very true. You know, the the appearance of Biden's comments when he said what, that the military didn't think this was a good idea. And of course, there were a number of op-ed pieces and other things in some of the American media that raised concerns about Pelosi's trip. I think some of that is perhaps intended to convey the idea, you know, that that there's debate and there's discussion and all this. But I think it's clear that an event of this magnitude, the visit of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, the Democratic Party Speaker of the House of Representatives, the same party as President Biden, This is not something that happens just sort of on a whim. This isn't, as you say, just her as a kind of rogue actor. And the fact that she reached out across party lines in Congress, invited Republicans as well as Democrats to accompany her, she referred to it in her comments in Taiwan as a congressional delegation. All of this suggests, I think, indicates pretty clearly that this isn't just some some casual kind of whim of an eccentric 
you know, older representative. But this is a component of America's policy towards China, which is a policy of provocation. It's a policy of demonization. And it's a policy of, of containment and of trying to to slow or thwart China's development and its reemergence as a significant participant in global affairs. I don't think there's much question that this reflects and extends the posture of hostility and aggressiveness that the United States has developed towards China, at least since the Obama administration with the original so-called pivot to Asia. This was just another expression of that despite the somewhat muddled messaging coming out of the White House. Yeah, I want to play a video clip. This is from Joe Biden's first overseas trip to Asia, first trip to Asia since taking office in January 2021. He's asked directly, is the U.S. prepared to use military force, meaning to have a military confrontation with China over Taiwan? Let's listen to how he responds. We remain committed to supporting the peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits and ensuring that there is no unilateral change of the status quo. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. Okay, he says using military force against China over Taiwan is a commitment that we made. Please explain that. I wish I could. Uh, that certainly doesn't reflect the realities of the legal obligations that the United States government has taken on itself. And it doesn't reflect even the statements that have been made by previous presidents and by this president in other contexts. The idea that the United States would undertake the actual military defense of Taiwan, I think, remains a very problematic question. We understand that President Biden sometimes is not as precise in his communications as one might hope that the president of the United States would be. And this perhaps was a situation where he simply went off script, didn't really understand the implications of what he was saying. I think that's certainly a possibility. Nonetheless. Ken, let me just interrupt quickly. Sure, sure, sure. As Nancy Pelosi has said, and as Bob Menendez in particular said, and he's another China hawk, in the U.S. Senate, he made the point that Biden said that not just at that moment, but he repeated it two other times. So since he's become president on three different occasions, he has reaffirmed that the U.S. will use military force. Now, you're right. Joe Biden has been, you know, he's famous for putting his foot in his mouth or both feet sometimes in his mouth. I mean, the man is notorious for it. But when you repeat on three different occasions since he's become president that the U.S., is prepared to go to war with China over Taiwan, to use military force. And he says it's a commitment we have made. And then Nancy Pelosi in her op-ed, again, that was issued the day she arrived in Taiwan, it was coordinated with the Washington Post. She says, well, we have a vow, a vow to defend Taiwan. So you have the Speaker of the House. And as you pointed out, she's not from the Republican Party. She's from Biden's own party saying we have a we have vowed to defend militarily Taiwan. And you have Biden himself saying on three separate occasions, this is a commitment we've made. It's not a misspeak on the part of Joe Biden. I agree with that. And I think that what's important is that it reflects the actual conduct of the United States. The conduct of the United States has been to reposition itself 
in the Western Pacific, in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, to take this aggressive posture, to ramp up its military provocations in the South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait. I think that, that the problem with Biden and his communications on this is that he will say in one instance, he will say, for example, most famously, when he's speaking directly with President Xi of China, that, oh, of course, the United States honors the one China policy. The United States, you know, respects the agreements that we've entered into. We have no wish to alter the situation with Taiwan. He says that on the one hand, and then he turns around and he makes these statements about, you know, military engagement. Now, I think that's very, very reckless and dangerous language for him to use. I think it does reflect the will, the intention on the part of political elites in the United States to push China, to provoke China as thoroughly as possible. I think we also, though, need to reflect upon America's conduct historically, which is that we often provoke situations, the American government has often provoked situations in which it sort of adopts this hostile posture. But when push comes to shove, it leaves people like the people of Ukraine right now to suffer the consequences of its, its reckless rhetoric and actions, while the United States sits back and sort of tries to reap the political benefits of this kind of conduct. The United States has been the terms, the formal terms of its agreements, its commitments to China on the one hand, and turning around on the other and sending warships into the Taiwan Strait, which is clearly the territorial waters of China. So I think that there's just a an overall recklessness in what President Biden, what the Biden administration, whether it's him or Secretary of State Blinken or Speaker Pelosi, all of these figures have adopted a very aggressive posture towards China. I'm glad you put it that way and emphasize the issue of arrogance and hubris and the U.S. officials sort of talking their way into a corner or talking in a way that ups the ante, escalates a situation, creates a confrontation, and then when all hell breaks loose, they can sit back and sort of, as you put it, just see which way the wind is blowing and, and see what kind of political rewards can be reaped. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's op-ed about her trip to Taiwan contextualizes the trip with her recent visit to meet the head of Ukraine, the leader of Ukraine, Zelensky, where she was basically shaking his hand and kissing him and doing this big publicity thing like, yeah, you guys just keep fighting, you Ukrainians. We're right behind you. You know, the fact is, Ken, they care about the Ukrainians just about as much as they care about the people in the island of Taiwan, which is not one whit. The American government, these politicians, these cynics, these war makers, these war mongers, they don't care about Taiwanese people. They didn't care about Taiwanese democracy. They supported Chiang Kai-shek's bloody military dictatorship, which you explained to us, and we can maybe review it for the audience, during that whole time when the people in, in Taiwan lived under really what was just the same as fascism under Chiang Kai-shek after the occupation of the island following the defeat of the Chiang Kai-shek, Kuomintang, or nationalist forces in China's civil war. They lost to the communists. They fled to Formosa, what the Japanese called Formosa, Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. They occupied it and they imposed a military dictatorship. And it was at that time, Ken, in 1955, when it was a complete military dictatorship and tens of thousands of Taiwanese were being killed, 
that the U.S. signed a, a mutual aid treaty, a military treaty with the so-called Republic of China, and they gave the Republic of China, the rump government in Taiwan, the seat of China at the U.N., they don't care about the Taiwanese. They don't care about Ukrainians. They don't care about Iraqis. That's all just for public consumption. Well, I completely agree with that. And I think that that touches on aspects of the history of Taiwan, aspects of the relationship between what's happening on the island of Taiwan and what's happening on the mainland, the rest of China. You know, that we went over some of that the last time. I thought one of the most remarkable things in that op-ed piece that Speaker Pelosi ran in the Washington Post was in her opening paragraphs where she talks about how the Taiwan Relations Act, when it was passed by Congress and signed by President Carter, that was in 1979, was a gesture of support for democratic Taiwan. Apparently, the speaker doesn't understand anything about the history of the island of Taiwan, because in 1979, it was under martial law. There was no democracy in Taiwan. No political party other than the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, was legally allowed. You know, I have friends uh, who were grad students going to learn Chinese in Taiwan back during that period. And, you know, it was illegal to go to a club and dance. And, you know, the police would raid places. It's just people here have no conception of what life on the island of Taiwan was like until martial law was finally lifted in 1987. That's eight years after the Taiwan Relations Act was passed. So when she says this was a, a recognition and a commitment to democratic Taiwan, it's just ridiculous for her to say that. There's no historical foundation for saying that, even today. You know, the different political parties that pass leadership around in Taiwan are all representatives of wealthy elites. You know, this is not a situation that's all that different from the phony democracy we have right here in the United States. So this idea of Taiwan as some sort of bastion of freedom and democracy, which he goes over time and time again, is just it's not connected to the lived realities of people on Taiwan, the vast majority of whom, of course, as we know from local political polls there just want things to go on the way they have been. They just want to go about their lives and pursue their own livelihoods. But all of this, the imposition of martial law back in 1947, 1948, and its maintenance for the next 40 years, the crises that have repeatedly sprung up back in the 50s when President Eisenhower even threatened to use nuclear weapons against China, all the way down to these present provocations that are going on today. What these reflect is exactly as you say, that Taiwan is a, it's a chip, it's a piece in a, on a chessboard. It's just a place that the United States views for its strategic value in its challenge to China. The United States sees China, sees China's development, economic progress, the enhancement of the livelihood of its people as a threat, as a challenge to American power and privilege in the world. And American corporations and American politicians, they fear for the loss of that power. They fear for the erosion of their profits. They don't want the world to change in a way that brings greater prosperity to other people, but only to one which continues to enrich themselves. That's changing. And that's going to change no matter what American politicians do. There's no way that these deep historical transformations taking place in the global economy are going to be thwarted by you know, this propaganda against China or by sending warships through the Taiwan Straits or even by 
sanctions or other things that the United States might try to impose. China is developing. It's going to continue to develop. That's the will of the Chinese people. And that's been a tremendously successful program there. The Chinese government is supported much more enthusiastically by Chinese citizens than American politicians are here at home. So we face this very, very dangerous situation where American politicians, American elites want to hold on to a past that is fading away behind them. And they're willing to endanger people all over the world and really, in fact, endanger the American people themselves in order to protect their own power and privileges. One of the big priorities for the U.S. government since Obama announced the pivot to Asia in 2011 has been to consolidate the other non-Chinese Asian countries into an American network that would be both an economic, political, diplomatic, and military sort of cordon around China, this containment of China. And by containment, we mean to put China in a container such that it can't really move. I mean, it's not containing Chinese expansionism because there, there's no visible Chinese expansionism outside of integrated trade agreements like the Belt and Road Initiative or other network-based economic arrangements. But there's no, China's not building military bases around the world. It's not expanding its military to other areas. So containing China means to put China in a container. So you had Biden, and we played a little clip from his first trip to Asia, talking about South Korea and Japan and the Philippines, other countries into this network. There was an article in the New York Times. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. It came out on Wednesday, it came out today, the day we're recording this show, where there's an analysis that this trip by Pelosi has actually undermined Biden's aggressive strategy of network building because what Pelosi did by escalating it so provocatively, by escalating the situation, by creating a confrontation or near confrontation in Asia, she did it without consulting any of the other so-called Asian partners. It shows that South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, or any other nation, they're not real partners. They're like junior partners or less than junior partners because here's Pelosi upping the ante. It could really impact on those countries if there's a military clash in Asia, in the Pacific. They're not talked to at all. It shows that they're really in a neo-colonial status. And obviously, since they don't want to be and no country wants to be a neo-colony and no country wants to be a subject to American imperialism and dictated to by American politicians like Nancy Pelosi, they're going to take umbrage at that. They're not going to like that. They're going to resist that. In other words, there's a self-defeating, contradictory character of this arrogant strategy. Oh, I couldn't agree more with that, too. Even Biden's trip, where he made those statements about military engagement with China, that was a trip that did not yield by any means the kinds of results that he had hoped for and that had been talked about before he embarked on that. I think that recent American diplomatic efforts in the Western Pacific or in Southeast Asia or South Asia have not been going well, you know, despite the propaganda that gets put out and, and the various claims that get made. These countries are very uncomfortable. I mean, Japan and South Korea are still, because, of course, they're occupied militarily by the United States. We have thousands, tens of thousands of troops over there. You know, they're in a situation that's somewhat particular. But other countries across the region are increasingly anxious about the, the desperation that they see in American activities in their areas. I think a very, very clear indication 
of all this has to do or can be seen, you know, in the response to the war in Ukraine, where, you know, the United States talks about how, oh, this has been such a great thing because, you know, the Biden administration has reunified all of our allies and the whole world is backing us against this terrible aggression by Russia and all this. When in fact, if you look at a map of the world and you look at the countries that have supported the American sanctions and the American aggression there, as opposed to countries that have not, the vast majority of people in the world are represented in countries that have not joined in that American sanctions regime and supported the American policies. And that includes countries that are routinely talked about by the Biden administration as if they were big supporters, like India. Right. India doesn't sign on to this stuff. Now, India and China have their own issues and those have their historical roots, much of which are the legacies of imperialism themselves. But the fact is that this is a moment where India and China are finding more in common in the anxiety that both countries feel about American imperialism and about American domination. So, yeah, I think that Pelosi's trip going to Singapore, going to Malaysia, those are not countries which are gung-ho supporters of the United States in this region. Those are both countries, especially Singapore, that have navigated a very, very careful relationship with China, that appreciate China's return to prominence in world affairs, and I think are anxious about American intentions and about how those are going to affect them. So, yeah, I think that this idea that this is, as Secretary of State Clinton said in a famous article back in 2011, this is not the new American Pacific century. That's what she was calling for. Let's have a new American Pacific century where the United States thinks of itself as the hegemonic power all across the Pacific. But we see that falling apart in places like Singapore, in little countries like the Solomon Islands. You know, the white colonial, you know, post-colonial societies like Australia and New Zealand, sure, they're willing to a certain extent to sign on, especially Australia. But we saw statements recently by Prime Minister Adern in New Zealand in which she said, let's not get carried away with this. You know, China is a very important country. We may have our disagreements, but we also have a lot of shared interests. That's a much more pragmatic approach. And when you see a country like New Zealand taking that kind of attitude, it suggests just how far American ambitions you know, are overreaching and how the realities of America's international situation are eroding in ways that simply are not being addressed. The pivot to Asia announced by Obama in 2011 was considered, well, it was misunderstood at first. A lot of people didn't know what it meant because it's vague. What does it mean to pivot to Asia? But obviously, when one started to read the details of what the pivot to Asia included, it meant that by 2020, nine years after Obama's announcement, the U.S. was planning to place 60% of its U.S. naval and 60% of its U.S. Air Force assets into the Pacific, meaning around China. So the pivot to Asia was, it had an economic component and a political component, but it had mainly a military component. And when the U.S., when you think about the U.S. history in the last, say, 125 years, this wasn't the first pivot to Asia. In 1898, the U.S. went to war against Spain to take over Spanish colonies, Puerto Rico and Cuba. That was in 1898, 1899. It then seized part of Colombia, created the Panama Canal. That was all designed to create a Caribbean base that would link American northeastern industrial cities to the Pacific and, and to China in particular. 
The European powers had already divided up, sliced up China into different spheres of influence. That's when Hong Kong was stolen by the UK, for instance. But the US, even though it was late to the game of dividing up China, it was there by 1898, 1899. John Hayes, the Secretary of State, wrote the open door notes as a policy. It was a pivot to Asia. And the Philippines was invaded. And a million Filipinos died resisting the American takeover of their country. And then the Philippines was made into a colony. And then right after World War II, right after the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, ending at the end of World War II, the U.S. pivoted to Asia by going to war in Korea. And four million Koreans died, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, about one out of every five. And the main complaint of American pilots was that there was nothing left to bomb in Korea. They made that complaint by December 1950 or January 1951, and the U.S. kept bombing for two more years. Then the U.S. went to war in Vietnam, another pivot to Asia. I mean, these pivots to Asia are pretty bad for Asians. And so we, you know, you had President Obama who won the Nobel Peace Prize for Well, he didn't do anything to win that prize. I mean, he got that prize because his name wasn't George W. Bush, I think. He got the I am not George W. Bush Nobel Peace Prize. But then he announces the pivot to Asia in 2011. And here we are again, risking another major war in Asia and the U.S. announcing major power conflict, meaning conflict with China as its priority. Whenever the U.S. pivots, it pivots in a military way. And this is so in such contradistinction to what the Chinese keep sort of insisting and the Americans denounce it as simply propaganda. They say, why should our rise, why should our, the Chinese people's rise out of poverty and underdevelopment be considered a negative or deficit for you? Why can't it be win-win? Why can't our peaceful rise out of underdevelopment and poverty be considered a good thing rather than an existential threat? Again, let's help the audience understand What's the logic here for U.S. policymakers? I mean, Philippines, Korea, Vietnam, now this pivot to Asia. What's the logic here, or is there no logic? I think there is a logic, but it's not the logic we prefer. (laughs) Well, I think there's a very straightforward logic, and the relationship between the United States and Asia has seen this logic be played out and demonstrated repeatedly. Your narrative picks up in the 1890s with the American war with Spain and taking the Philippines and Guam and all that. Even that is a only a successive stage in a process that goes back much earlier. As early as the 1840s or so, the United States had passed legislation that gave itself the right to go out and take territory on islands across the Pacific that were useful for refueling or restocking American naval ships, that were seen as potential sources of vital chemicals, things like potassium and others, nitrates. And this was a policy that really went back to the very origins of the Republic. The wealth of Asia, the wealth of China, you know, was a huge attraction. I mean, that goes back to the whole modern history of Western civilization is grounded on this quest for access to and then control of the wealth of Asia. And in the 19th century, the United States becomes a part of that. U.S. is occupied considerably with its own domestic imperialism, with the conquest of indigenous peoples and the expansion of its territory on the continent. But by the end of the 19th century, those very 1890s that you're talking about, 
the Pacific becomes the great new frontier. We overthrew the independent monarchy of Hawaii in 1895, annexed it in 1898. We had purchased Alaska from Russia at bargain basement prices back in the 1860s. So this thrust into the Pacific, pivot to Asia, if you will, as you say, this has deep, deep historical roots. But there is a common logic to it, which is gaining access to and control of wealth. You know, the, the pursuit of profits, this is a structural imperative of the capitalist system. The United States is, in many ways, still remains the premier capitalist society and economy in the world. We are at the heart of a global system of capitalism that isn't just a matter of the American nation, but is an international imperialist system. And what that means is that capital will go wherever it can to maximize its profits, to maximize its return on investment. And for much of history, that has meant Asia. Asia has been a source of tremendous wealth. And the United States has steadfastly and consistently pursued that. So gaining access, you know, you mentioned Secretary Hayes' open door notes. When I teach about those, I always refer to those as the equal opportunity imperialism notes, because they were designed to prevent other countries from establishing exclusive areas of economic exploitation. We wanted access to every place for economic exploitation. That's why the United States was an opponent of European colonialism under President Roosevelt. Roosevelt understood that European colonies were a barrier to American capital. So he supported independence for Indonesia, for example. He supported you know, the independence of India. It didn't come in his lifetime, neither of those, but he supported those because he wanted to break down the exclusive policies of European colonial empires so that American capital could go wherever it wanted. And that has remained kind of the litmus test of American foreign policy. It remains that today. Where can American capital go to pursue its profitability? If a country is open to American capital, if a country throws itself at the feet of American capital and says, come on in and take what you need, you know, give us the crumbs from your table, that's a great country. It doesn't matter what its political situation is. Look at Saudi Arabia. America makes billions of dollars, and we don't care about the repressiveness of that regime. We don't care about their policies of assassinating their political opponents. We don't care about cutting off the hands of people who do shoplifting. We don't care about that stuff. All we care about is the profitability of American investments and American economic trade and things like that. But a country that resists American capital, a country that says, We'd rather conduct our own affairs in our own self-interest to develop our own economy and take care of our own people. Again, it doesn't matter what the nature of that political system is. They could have a representative democracy. They could have a liberal political society. You know, it doesn't matter. They're going to be demonized. They're going to be targeted. And they're going to be seen as, you know, authoritarian, autocracies, whatever you want to call them. And we have a whole name list that American politicians love to trot out. But they're going to be seen as enemies. They're going to be seen as unfree societies. What matters about freedom is freedom of capital, freedom of capital flow. And that is the underlying principle of American foreign policy. You're either with us or you're against us. When the United States thought that China was going to throw itself at the feet of capital and was going to become a capitalist country and was going to have you know, regime change and color revolution or whatever, then we had this much more constructive relationship. 
Now that it's very clear that China doesn't intend to do that, China is seeking its own path, trying to build its own socialist future. Now they're the worst enemy possible because they, even though there's certainly plenty of American investment there, they don't just throw their doors wide open and say, come take whatever you want, right? Those are the criteria by which American policy is calibrated. And we can see that in the implacable hostility which has emerged as China's autonomy, China's independence, China's self-determination has become an increasing reality over the last couple of decades. Let's go back to the Taiwan issue and Nancy Pelosi's visit. In her op-ed in the Washington Post, again, it was published in coordination with the Post the day within an hour when she landed in Taiwan, which showed that the Post, if they have any differences with Pelosi, they were certainly making their portal available for her explanation of why she's doing this reckless act. She wrote, we made a solemn vow. We in the United States made a solemn vow to support the defense of Taiwan in the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, the thing we talked about earlier. In the face, this is Nancy Pelosi, in the face of the Chinese Communist Party's accelerating aggression, our congressional delegation's visit should be seen as an unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan, our democratic partner, as it defends itself and its freedom. Okay, what is the aggression, Ken? What is the aggression that China is carrying out against Taiwan? Never mind the fact that if the U.S. acknowledges, which it did in 1972 and 79 and subsequently in the different communiques, starting with the Shanghai communique, that Taiwan is part of China, let's leave that one aside. You know, like if China was actually carrying out a military or police action against Taiwan, it would actually be an internal matter in China because China has sovereign control over Taiwan, which the U.S. policy acknowledges. But let's leave that aside. What the hell is she talking about in terms of China's growing aggression against Taiwan? Well, what she's talking about is this idea that China is defying American wishes, that China is not simply rolling over and saying, you know, you take what you want, you do what you want, and we'll just accommodate ourselves to you in whatever ways you think are necessary. As China has become more self-confident, it has become more self-assertive, it is taking its place in the world, American elites, and Pelosi as a classic embodiment of this, they can't conceive of a world in which other countries pursue their own self-interest. Other countries, you know, develop their economies and enhance the livelihoods of their people. They can't conceive of that as anything other than an erosion of their own power, as a taking away of their privileges. So they see it as aggression because they see it as China chipping away at the fortress of their wealth and power, you know, rather than trying to understand it as a historical process in which China's trying to take care of its own people, trying to take care of its own needs and interests. And if you look at the Taiwan issue in a historical context, there was a civil war in China. It lasted for 27 years between the nationalist forces led by Chiang Kai-shek, that's the Kuomintang, and the Communist Party forces led by Mao Zedong. And in 1949, after the reopening of that civil war following World War II's conclusion, the communists win. 
and Chiang Kai-shek takes his forces and they flee to the island of Taiwan and they take it over. They basically create a military dictatorship there. Now, the Chinese Communist Party could have pursued Chiang Kai-shek and invaded that island right then and there and probably taken control of it right then and there. Whether China was going to reunify with Taiwan peacefully through peaceful reunification or militarily, again, that would be a matter of the historical civil war as of yet really in some ways unfinished because the defeated nationalists took refuge in Taiwan and the Chinese communists didn't chase them out of there. So in one way, you could say it's a suspended civil war or a civil war in hiatus in a way. But China, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is what I'm kind of getting at. China declared later, made it sort of unequivocal that they were not going to seek military reunification, meaning conquering the island, that they were going to reunify Taiwan peacefully as they did with Hong Kong. And so when Nancy Pelosi talks about the continued aggression against Taiwan, has there been some change in China's policy regarding the peaceful reunification of Taiwan? Because I'm not aware of that change. No, quite the contrary. Xi Jinping has been very consistent and very clear in his statements that this is an issue, the question of the status of Taiwan, the relationship between the local authorities on the island and the rest of the government is an issue that is an internal question. It is a question that has come down from history. That's how it is referred to, which is exactly as you say, this is a legacy of events that took place over 70 years ago. The result of a massively successful popular revolution that established the People's Republic. And it was only the military, the concentration of military forces, all the nationalists, the remnant national forces, at least the vast majority of them, that were withdrawn that occupied the island of Taiwan after suppressing, you know, widespread local opposition. You mentioned that earlier as well. You know, and then the United States imposes its naval forces in the strait to try to block any effort by the PLA to come across. You know, this was a moment where history kind of gets put on hold, you know, and that legacy has come down to us today. But the government of the People's Republic has been very clear that their intention is not to invade and take over and launch some sort of military campaign, what would be the point of that? Why would that be a good thing for them to do? It would damage the people and the economy of Taiwan. It would damage people and the economy on the mainland. It wouldn't be a good thing for anybody. The people on both sides of the strait are Chinese, and they share a historical identity. They share a common culture. And you know, Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders have been very clear that this is a problem that needs to be resolved by the Chinese on both sides of the strait in their own way, in their own time. China's not the one that's pushing this. China's not the one that's saying, hey, you know, we're tired of waiting. We have to resolve this right now. Let's, you know, you guys get ready because we're coming. That's not what the Chinese are saying. The Chinese have continued to say what they have said, you know, for many, 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 many years, which is that we want to resolve this. We want to resolve this peacefully. We see the reunification of the country the reintegration of Taiwan, you know, into a larger thing. Although, you know, as with Hong Kong, this idea of one country, two systems, that can be applied in Taiwan as well. You know, so it's not, nobody's talking on the Chinese side about invading. Nobody's talking about forcing Taiwan to adopt a political structure that's identical to that of much of the rest of the country. You know, 
this is something that comes down from history and needs to be resolved by the Chinese themselves when that's doable. There have been points where convergence between the two sides has seemed to be well advanced. And there have been other points, certainly we find ourselves at a nadir right now, in which the tensions have you know, deepened. But nonetheless, it's a long, ongoing historical process. And the Chinese recognize you know, the depth of history and the way in which some of these things just take, <laughs> they take a little time. So it's not China that has been aggressive. It's not China that has been destabilizing. It's this new attitude stemming most clearly from the Obama administration through the Trump administration and now certainly reaching new heights under the Biden administration of the United States trying to upset the apple cart, the United States trying to provoke China, trying to trigger something which will allow the United States to inflict damage on China, whether it's economic or, God forbid, military this is the aggression. This is the posture where change is coming from. It's not something that the Chinese are doing. Chinese have not changed their posture. We headlined this show in our title and in our social media that Pelosi has left Taiwan. What comes next? And I think that is the most pressing issue. And I want to go now as we continue our discussion to talk about what actually does come next. Because this was a historical moment, Ken. Yes, it was the first time in 25 years that a Speaker of the House came to Taiwan, but it's quite different from the last time. Because Newt Gingrich, as we talked about last time, Newt Gingrich, the Republican leader of the House of Representatives, went to Taiwan in 1997, but Bill Clinton was then president. So it could be considered like Newt Gingrich sort of thumbing his nose at the sitting president of the United States. But here you have Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, the leader of the House. Biden is the president, both Democrats. Obviously, it's in conjunction with the White House. Now, her op-ed and her statements, and the statements also of Bob Menendez, another China hawk in the Senate, they're making the argument that her visit is necessary and the reassurance, so-called, for military defense of Taiwan is necessary in order to sort of clarify the strategic ambiguity that was deliberately created by the United States when it, one, recognized that Taiwan was part of China, but at the same time adopted the Taiwan Relations Act, which meant that it would continue to send weapons to Taiwan. So there's this what's called strategic ambiguity, strategic uncertainty, not uncertainty really, but a deliberate sort of diplomatic language ploy. But what they're saying in the recent weeks is that we have to vow and show our support for Taiwan because otherwise it allows China to continue with its, quote, messaging about one China, as if the idea that there's one China and Taiwan is part of it is now being described by American political leaders as a propaganda tool or a propaganda ploy of Chinese publicity, of the Chinese state. That would be like if somebody said the United States recognizing sovereignty over, say, Hawaii, since we mentioned the annexation of Hawaii, that that was a message by the United States rather than the reality that Hawaii is now technically a part of the United States. It's one of the 50 states. It's part of the sovereign entity called the United States of America. 
But now the U.S. politicians in the last couple of weeks are talking about Taiwan or China's assertion that it's part of China as a message from China rather than an established fact. And at the same time, if China, you know, like some people on the left in particular, and I think some people who are angry with U.S. imperialism were, were hoping that China would take some dramatic military action when Pelosi was in Taiwan. I think it would have been a mistake to have done that. It would have played into Pelosi's hands. But it's clear that the U.S. and Pelosi's strategy was we're going to defy China, give de facto recognition to the so-called independence of Taiwan by making this visit. And if China does anything you know, that's overt, we'll call China an aggressor and then up the ante more. And if China does something that's restrained or perceived to be passive, then China will seem to have succumbed to American threats, in which case Nancy Pelosi's visit will be followed up by other visits. I mean, why wouldn't Marco Rubio, Senate Hawk from the Republicans go? Why not Japanese nationalists start to visit and meet with the Taiwan authorities? I mean, in other words, China is now confronted with this situation where if you take overt action, you're the aggressor. And if you are restrained, that will accelerate or embolden the acts of the imperialists and their apologists and supplicants. It seems to me that this is a real turning point, an inflection point. And I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I really do believe that this was designed to be an inflection moment in the escalating campaign of major power conflict against China. That's why I believe even if there's no immediate outbreak of military hostilities, we're one step closer towards it. I think that's very true. I think that China's response has been very measured. They have been absolutely clear and consistent in their statements, in their condemnation of this, in their portrayal of it, their recognition of it as a provocation, as an effort to spark some sort of more intensive conflict. And they have resisted what must have been in some ways a a strong temptation to take some sort of more interventionist action with Pelosi's visit. They didn't do any of that, even though there was some speculation about possible gestures that they might make. Now, after Pelosi has departed, the PLA, as we know, is going to be carrying out these military exercises in six clearly delineated spaces, which you know encircle the island. Some of the Chinese press has referred to this as a kind of de facto blockade for the moment. It's only going on over a three-day period. And I think on the one hand, it is designed and intended to be a demonstration of capabilities, that they can do this. This is not the China of 1997, the last time that there was a a level of tension not even as high as this, but the last time there was significant tension over this, when uh, the U.S. sent two carrier fleets through the Taiwan Strait. I don't think we're going to be seeing that this time. At least I certainly hope not. But these exercises they're carrying on right now are demonstrating the enhanced capability of China to take care of its own security concerns. And I think that, of course, under international law, under the agreements that the United States is formally committed to, all of this is taking place in what are China's territorial waters. The waters around Taiwan are part of the waters of China. And so the idea that somehow this is an aggressive action or something you know, that's not consistent with the legal position, the political situation in reality, even though it may conflict with this 
fantasy discourse that politicians like Pelosi, you mentioned Rubio and others, are putting out. So I think that, that for now, China is being militarily very restrained, very measured in its response. I think that they've imposed some economic penalties on Taiwan. There's two audiences for all of this. One, of course, is Taiwan itself sending a message to the political elites on Taiwan that they should be careful of how they flirt with the United States. You know, if they think that they can control the United States, they may want to think again because the U.S. is simply using them. But the bigger audience, of course, is American political elites. And here the Chinese are demonstrating that they can respond effectively, they can impose some costs on Taiwan, and they can demonstrate their military capabilities. So I think those kinds of responses, and I don't think that these three days of exercises are going to be the end of that. I think we're going to see an enhanced sensibility or sensitivity on the part of China around these military concerns. But I agree very much with you that we have set the stage, Pelosi has set the stage for a very, very dangerous future a future in which the U.S. clearly intends to continue its provocations, clearly intends to try to up the ante, what the U.S. would like would be to provoke a military clash, a situation in which the U.S. isn't going to pay the price, or at least that's their hope and their expectation. It'll be like Ukraine, where you know the local people are going to be the ones who suffer, but it will impose costs on China, which the Americans hope will halt its development, turn back the tide of history. That's a a foolish, reckless, dangerous enterprise to be embarking on. But it does seem to be the way that American politicians are going. They just can't conceive of a different way to operate in the world than this kind of aggressive, disruptive, you know, destructive kind of attitude. So I certainly agree that this is an inflection point. This is a point beyond which I don't see the clear future or I don't see the future clearly. I think that these remain very dangerous times. You know, we've gotten through this moment of crisis with Pelosi's visit, but I agree that the path forward is complex. I think the Chinese are doing the very best that they can in coping with this. They have to attend to their own concerns. They don't want to be drawn into the kind of counterproductive arms race that, of course, was problematic for the Soviet Union. They really want to concentrate on taking care of the needs of the Chinese people and helping other developing countries around the world to pursue their own course of independent, non-imperialist dominated economic improvement. But it is a dangerous time and a dangerous future that lies before us. Ken, last point. In a couple weeks, at the end of August, the United States is going to resume with South Korea. There's a new conservative South Korean president. War games, massive war exercises that have been suspended after Trump met twice with Kim Jong-un. There were still military exercises, but not of these massive kind that the U.S. was doing biannually or twice a year with South Korea and U.S. military forces. They, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of troops, aircraft, they're going to do it again. And the word has just come out that they're going to, and this, the Pentagon obviously leaked this, they're going to include the simulated invasion of North Korea and the simulated assassination of the head of state of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Now, can you imagine, can any of us imagine if North Korea or if China was carrying out simulated invasion war games somewhere not too far from the United States. And of course, the U.S.-South Korean military drills are not just off of North Korea's 
waters. They're off of China's waters because North Korea and China share a border. But simulating not only the invasion and destruction of the country, but the targeted killing of the head of state. Can we imagine what the reaction would be by the United States? It would be viewed as not a reckless provocation, but really the basis for actual war. And this goes back, Ken, and I'm going to end with this, this kind of hubris and arrogance where America can talk and do these kind of actions as if there's nothing bad that could happen to America or Americans, because all the bleeding is going to be done somewhere else. All the suffering is going to be done somewhere else. And all these privileged people like Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and most of the bureaucracy in the Pentagon, you know, people who led very, very privileged lives, who are the so-called intellectuals of the capitalist imperialist state, carrying out this kind of arrogant planning for war. And the last time the U.S. was at war with Korea, it also involved China. You know, a million Chinese came in and drove the U.S. back. And the U.S. threatened China and North Korea. The Joint Chiefs of Staff in May 1953 unanimously agreed that they were going to start dropping nuclear bombs all over China and North Korea if the Chinese did not successfully pressure the North Koreans to signing the Armistice Agreement, which was eventually signed on July 27, 1953, a few months later. But again, can you know, people playing with fire, as the Chinese said, those who play with fire will perish by it. And I think some people in the American media took that as hyperbole or even like an act of aggression by China to, to be complaining so loudly. But the Americans are playing with fire. And by the Americans, I don't mean the American working class. I mean the American ruling class and its imperial foreign policy establishment. With my very, very long question, I'm going to give you the final word. I think that there's a very important subtlety in that comment that came out of China in President Xi's message with President Biden. We've seen the rendition in the media many times of, you know, those who play with fire are going to get burned. And I think that sometimes that's taken to mean, you know, that if the United States continues its aggressive activities, that China is going to burn the United States. But in fact, the translation from what President Xi said and I've seen this in a couple of instances, but most of the time it's slightly mistranslated, isn't, you know, those who play with fire are going to get burned. It's those who play with fire will burn themselves. And I think that's a very important thing because the United States is playing with fire. The United States is taking these very provocative, very reckless, very dangerous actions out in the world, not just with China, but especially with China. And the consequences of that are not going to be you know, necessarily that China is going to do something that is unprovoked or is, you know, an aggressive action or something, but that whatever the consequences may be, and they may be economic, they may be political, they're potentially could be political or military rather, and we certainly hope that it doesn't go to that level. But if it does, or if, you know, whatever the consequences are, we need to understand that these are things that, that American elites have brought upon themselves. And sadly, upon working people in America as well. It is we, the American people, who will suffer the consequences of the reckless policies that are being pursued by government leaders. You know, and that's not something that they're willing to acknowledge. You know, they always want to blame the other side for everything, even though, as we've talked about in a number of instances today, it's changes in American policy, the pivot to Asia, all of these provocations going on. This is the destabilization. This is the aggression that's going on. 
And this is what will trigger whatever consequences we all have to endure. Dr. Ken Hammond, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Sorry, these are such tense times. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.